You're here with a mission, sir? I am. Trying to get me back in the world? Trying to save it. You think you're the only superhero in the world? You become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. What if I told you we were putting a team together? Who's we? I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. This is now playing's The Avengers Retrospective Series. The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Earth's Mightiest Heroes type thing. Part of the now playing Marvel comic movie series. Well, I guess that's worth a look. Hosted by Arnie. Textbook. Narcissism. Greed. Jacob. Who is, of course, a national treasure. And Stuart. I need you. Yeah, more than you know. Not that much. What are you prepared to do? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, we will be reviewing all the Avengers movies. Iron Man. I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly. The Incredible Hulk. He was a freak accident. The goal is to do it better. Iron Man 2. Never has a greater Phoenix metaphor been personified in human history. Thor. You're big. Fought bigger. Captain America. How many of you are ready to help me sock old Adolf on the job? And ending with a weekend of release review of The Avengers. I have an army. We have a Hulk. Let me emphasize that what I'm about to share with you is tremendously sensitive both to me personally and the army. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. I've always been more curious than cautious. So, are we going to do this? Gentlemen, you're up. Today we're discussing Iron Man 2, starring... Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, Don Cheadle, Scarlett Johansson, Mickey Rourke, and directed by John Favreau. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and with me is my not-so-super-secret boy band. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob. I will serve this great podcast at the pleasure of myself. If there's one thing I've proven, it's that you can count on me to pleasure myself. <laughs> Just keep it on your side of the recording and we're all good. Yeah, I try to keep it away from the mic. And we are here with the third movie of the Marvel series, the second Iron Man movie, because Iron Man 1 was so successful, they just couldn't wait for Avengers to make more money. Yeah, it felt like a property that was only going to get bigger and faster. I mean, we still have yet to get the sequel to Batman, which came out the same summer as Iron Man. But Iron Man 2, two years later, here it is. And in between, we've had Downey put out Tropic Thunder, which he got an Oscar nomination for. Deservedly. Yeah, and got the Sherlock Holmes franchise going. So I just felt like it wasn't just a fluke. He isn't just Iron Man. He isn't just Tony Stark, or rather, Tony Stark can do other movies as well. Always kind of playing Tony Stark, but yes. Yeah. Or playing himself. It's one and the same. Well, to get into it, the movie actually calls it out this time. When does the person end and when does the Iron Man begin? At the CGI, I guess. But I was very excited for this movie. I mean, again, as I said, I think with Hulk, Marvel took a year off because they weren't ready for any more movies. And they were working on Captain America, Thor, and Avengers. But to get there, they had to take... No movies in 2009, and in 2010, finally Iron Man 2 came out, and I was there opening night. Could not have been more excited. Not 
for Iron Man, but for Downey to see him back. He was such a fun presence in the first one. I really look forward to seeing what they did in the second one. I also saw this opening weekend, and I'm, I would say this with all these real Marvel movies building up to the Avengers. I was kind of eh about it. And then I got hyped and hyped as it got closer. And there I was opening weekend. There's one scene in particular, one five second scene in the trailer that convinced me to go see this in theaters. And I'll call it out when we get there. But I was there opening weekend. Was it actually in the movie? Because this movie made the major league mistake of cutting a lot of the trailer scenes. Yes, it's in the movie. It's not, you know, when Gwyneth Paltrow makes out with the Iron Man helmet. Well, what about when Scarlett Johansson is firing the wrist gauntlets? That was what I wanted to see. I wanted to see Black Widow with the Iron Man tech. Not in the film. I don't remember the previews at all, and I wasn't hyped to go. I didn't go opening weekend, but I wanted to see it, and I did see it in theaters before it disappeared. It might have been last weekend before it left. It's definitely one of those where I wanted to go to a movie and what's out, and oh, okay, I have fond memories of the last one. You know, the reviews weren't very good. There was no real indicator to let me know that this was going to be of the same quality, but I had such an appreciation for what they did last time, I thought, "Ah, I'm not going to have a bad time. All the players are back. Favreau's back in the directing chair. They still got Downey in the suit. All the supporting people that make the difference. They all came back. So how bad could it be? You said the reviews weren't very good. Does that include Marjorie and my review of Iron Man 2 when it came out? I did re-listen to that. Yeah, I was curious to know what you guys thought of it. And they were qualified recommends. Yeah, we'll see if years later I feel the same way. But we did do that as one of our last like microcast episodes before we just started doing so many of these hour-plus reviews that we just don't have time to do any more short ones. Well, Arnie, you're so excited you had to review it twice. Tell people what they've missed. What's the plot? The plot is... Tony Stark is dying. It's been six months since he announced he is Iron Man, and the mineral that powers the arc reactor in his chest, keeping the shrapnel from his heart, is slowly poisoning him. Despite his best efforts, he's not been able to find a suitable, non-toxic alternative power source, so faced with his own mortality, he starts to get his affairs in order. He promotes his assistant, Pepper Potts, to CEO of Stark Industries, he donates his art collection to charity, and he even revives the Stark Expo, a year-long celebration of technological achievements that have been started by Tony's father, Howard Stark. He also continues to fight against the U.S. government. Iron Man has had a chilling effect creating world peace, but the military and Congress are worried about other countries escalating and creating competing tech. Stark's friend Rhodey has been Stark's liaison, shielding him from having the iron suit taken, which became easier when Stark said other countries are years away from being able to produce a full mech suit. But he's proven wrong when, while racing in Monaco, Stark is attacked by Ivan Vanko. The son of Anton Vanko, Howard Stark's research partner who was deported for selling uranium to Russia, Anton died penniless but left the designs for an arc reactor with Ivan who created a suit with giant electrical whips based on the same arc technology. Tony defeats Ivan, but Ivan was spotted by Justin Hammer, Tony Stark's business rival, who's taken most of the government contracts left unfulfilled by Stark Industries once Tony stopped making weapons. Breaking Ivan out of jail, Justin orders the Russian to make some iron suits. And Tony, getting sicker, has a birthday bash in which he gets drunk and rowdy in the Iron Man suit, so Rhodey dons Tony's Mark II armor and subdues the drunk billionaire before flying off, taking the Mark II to the military and Justin Hammer to outfit it with weapons. But Nick Fury shows up and saves the day. Tony's new assistant, Natalie, was really Natasha Romanoff, a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent codenamed Black Widow, and she called in Nick when Tony went out of control. 
Nick tells Tony that Howard Stark was a founder of S.H.I.E.L.D. and leaving Tony with some research that clues him in, his father discovered a new element that can replace the palladium in Tony's chest. Tony has a montage in which he creates the new element from his father's designs, and then in his new, more powerful suit, he flies to the Stark Expo where Hammer is showing off Rhodey in the armor, now named War Machine, as well as the Hammer Drones, complete automaton battle machines. But Vanko built a back door, and when Tony shows up, the drones start to attack. A huge battle ensues, Black Widow takes out some of Hammer's security people, Tony and Rhodey fight the drones, then fight Vanko himself in his Whiplash armor, and when Whiplash is defeated, explosives planted on all the drones begin to detonate, creating a massive explosion, but Stark saves Pepper at the last second, and they kiss on the rooftop, all right with the world. But credits don't roll, we get our Avengers scene, which I'm sure we're going to discuss, and then after the credits, a Thor scene that I'm sure we'll also discuss, so let's get into it. We started off, and I couldn't help but think again of Transformers. I always seem to go back to Transformers when it says, Tony Stark brings about world peace as Iron Man. Why are you thinking Transformers? Because I had thought that Iron Man went and killed all the evildoers. You're not wrong, Arnie. I got that same vibe. I mean, you get Tony talking about he's brought world peace and no one would dare to attack America because of him, that he's cleaned everything up. You know, there was a lot of controversy during a certain administration about unilateralism and going in and taking care of things on our own to make world peace, to get rid of the evildoers. And here's the hero of our movie, and that's what he's doing, unilaterally going out at taking out countries, making sure no one's going to attack America. It's uneasy for me. Yeah, but you know, he's the best of both worlds. You're calling out Bush. I'll go ahead and say it, that yes, that he has a Bush quality to him, but he also borrows from the Obama playbook as well about transparency. He lets you know he's doing it. There's no Dick Trainee cabal behind it all. He says, I am Iron Man. I am going to do this. And it's really, I think, the ideal leader. You know what I mean? I mean, he's a fun guy with awesome military deterrence, but he's upfront about who he is and just wants everyone to party. I mean, he's not in it for his own personal dominance. I don't get the sense that Tony Stark wants to be king of the world. I think he just wants to make the world his playground. I mean, yeah, he is kind of already king of the world, right? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> What he's really concerned about in this movie is building a legacy. He's starting to think beyond himself. That's sort of a big theme in the story is what goes beyond him. How does he carry on what the work his father did and who's going to carry on his legacy when he goes, which as they tell us early on, maybe pretty damn soon. I like all of the ways that we're brought back into the story. And first and foremost, I love the idea that Iron Man is killing him. Lead poisoning, you know? It's not a good idea, kids. Don't put <laughs> batteries in your body. Long-term effects, not so great. And that the more he uses Iron Man, the quicker his blood toxicity level skyrockets. I did like that. What kind of bothers me, though, is that it's seen as inevitable. When in fact, it's been shown he could just walk around with a car battery or if he chose to be bedridden or something like that, it doesn't have to kill him. It may completely screw up his billionaire playboy lifestyle, 
but he could live without the arc reactor, and the movie never explores that option. He's just ready to die. Why do you say that? It never occurred to me that he didn't need that device to live. When he first got injured in Afghanistan, he didn't have the arc reactor. He built that. Before that, he just had like a big powerful magnet hooked up to a car battery. Right, which he would have less than a week to live if that came. I mean, you're saying his other option is to walk around with a car battery? There's a lot of people who walk around with oxygen tanks on carts or on little moped devices devices, rascals, and whatnot. He didn't have to die. He could have taken other measures. All right, but a serious quality of life change. Yes. And yes, one that would be very difficult for someone so extroverted. And the other option is to not use the arc reactor and die anyway. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. It's it's the thing that's keeping him alive, but it's also killing him. Good conflict. I think that's exactly where I want to pick up with Iron Man. I, I think that's the next logical step after we've seen him assume the identity and end with, hey, I am Iron Man. All right, well, what does that mean? What does that look like after the party in? Not so great. Kind of gross. <laughs> Almost Cronenbergian, the way those like blue veins are popping out of his chest. It's just an icky merging of man and machine. I did like that. I liked that quite a bit. I thought it was an intriguing conflict. I think Downey played it well, too, because he always had the public face, but then we also got the quiet moments with him where he's testing his own blood. It's like the only person he could be honest with is Jarvis the computer. Yeah, the Tony Stark we saw in the last movie is now an act put on by a person that's very concerned about what is his legacy going to be. And one of the first things he does, another creative decision I love, he gives the keys to the kingdom to Gwyneth. That's a nice character development for her. I like seeing her step out of the shadows and not be seen as a secretary. She's the real power behind Stark Industries anyway. Why doesn't she get the credit? But is she a business person? You know, I never really got that. She's very organized. She could be a businesswoman. But I never got that she had ever dealt with hiring and firing and the hard decisions that a CEO has to make. She's a personal assistant. She's a glorified secretary who still takes out the trash when needed. Furthermore, I'm going to just say it seems like the cliche thing to do. I mean, first of all, Tony is dying from his powers. Reading comic books in the 90s, I go right back to Spawn, where you had this superhero that every time he used his powers, a clock went down, and eventually he would run out of those powers, and something horrible would happen. Now you got the sidekick that's going to be put in the powerful position. I don't know. To me, it doesn't seem like it's pushing boundaries like the first one did, where they really seem to go out, and we're going to do this whole new type of superhero that you know he's the billionaire he's the one percent but we're gonna make you love him here these seem like common tropes in storytelling i don't know i don't know spawn so it didn't remind me of that but i can't ever think of a character who would let their assistant like completely take over their business as soon as he got his new gadget i mean presumably what he's saying is being iron man does not afford me the luxury of being at the head of this company not only is he concerned about how long do i have left to live but also i think he wants to spend whatever remaining time he has dealing with this new power and really contemplating what it can be there's a real debate here it becomes overt in a minute but is this a part of him or is this a weapon? I mean, is this just an augmentation of who Tony Stark is? Is it a prosthesis or is it a weapon? That's what he eventually has to testify about. Another 
really cool debate that I love at the start of this movie. I like the way so many things are handled in this opening. I mean, I love how we start off at that Stark Expo and get, of course, our obligatory Stan Lee cameo. This time he's mistaken for Larry King instead of Hugh Hefner. And then he's subpoenaed by a very hot girl. The government knows how to get to him. Yeah. And then who's the government? Gary! It's Gary Shandling's show! <laughs> An odd choice. I don't think I've seen Gary Shandling in anything for about ten years. I haven't seen him since that movie where he was the horny space alien. Oh, yeah. God, I didn't see that. You saw that? I saw that. Was it worth watching? Only if you like car wrecks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what, though? I like Gary Shandling. I have since the 80s in his Fox show, and I liked seeing him here... I found out when listening to the commentary why they pulled him out, though, because it was it is a weird choice. Mm. They needed somebody who was a bit older who could keep up with Robert Downey Jr.'s ad libs and respond in funny manners. Ah, yeah, it sort of is a vehicle for comedians and comedic style actors, witty people. They do best here. It's a good choice in that respect. I'm going to say, you know, if you go back and listen to our Aviator review, one of the things, one of the few things I liked about that movie was the government court hearings. I guess I have a hard on for that kind of stuff, watching people fight with the government. And this pulls me in. I was kind of, you know, with the the opening at the World Expo, but getting to see Tony Stark be Robert Downey Jr., Robert Downey Jr. just be himself, you know, going back and forth with Gary Shandling, this seems a lot of fun. Are you sure you have a hard-on for the criminal investigation or Senate hearings and not just because you're pleasuring yourself? (laughs) I don't need to know. Perhaps that's why I'm pleasuring myself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Marvel guys, I know your rules now. I'm looking at these kind of supporting characters and wondering if they play a larger role in the Marvel Universe. Senator Stern, is he related to who Tim Blake Nelson played in Incredible Hulk? Sam Stern? Is this a character? No. This is just a made-up senator. Oh. Well, damn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I get for paying attention to names. I'm writing it down. I'm like, oh, I'm going to catch them. They won't get me this time, boy. Well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> but I'm right there with you, Jacob. I think when we get to talk about Iron Man, we basically intellectualize what we saw in the last movie of, okay, here's the relationship between the military industrial complex. Here's business siding with the U.S. government, and what kind of stance are they going to take about Tony assuming the identity of the coolest weapon in the world? I mean, I like all of this kind of stuff here. It's infinitely quotable. You know, I think it's so much fun to watch Downey shoot him down. The argument is basically what? That Tony has to give, for the interest of national security, has to give up what he sees as an extension of himself, right? Yeah, that is basically it. And because he is committed to not selling weapons, he doesn't want to give it up. And part of it could be ego. I mean, he's the only one, right? Mass produce him, he becomes less special. He actually equates it to slavery or prostitution. I mean, you know, that's his wit going. But I do agree, yes. He thinks that there's no one else like him. I mean, that's his hubris, is that there's only one me, so there's nothing to worry about. No one will ever be able to replicate me, and even gets the opportunity in this meeting to shoot down his main rival. Am I the only one who thought RoboCop 2 when they show all the failed attempts? Yes, yes. (laughs) Totally went to RoboCop 2 there. I haven't seen RoboCop in 20 years, but next year I think we might. (laughs) This is a great way for them to reintroduce all the main characters, though, right? We get Pepper Potts, 
there. And then we're introduced to new players, Justin Hammer, who is the rival you were referring to, played by an absolute wonderful actor. Love him in everything. Sam Rockwell. Yeah, a little character actor that I always love when he pops up in things. For me, it sold me on him early when I saw him in that movie about the Hitman game show host, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. We talked about last week with the Hulk how they had all these big actors, but they really couldn't seem to do much with their roles. Here, I'm thinking, you know, Gary Shandling, Robert Downey Jr., Sam Rockwell, all people that seem to just be doing what they do, being themselves in this film, and it's totally working. It's like they didn't write these people into roles that they couldn't really fit into. They're asked to play themselves, and it's working here for me. It's two things. You're right. The people are well cast, and the world is fun. It's lighthearted. Even though that they're talking about the issues of privatizing world peace anyone can enjoy this kids can enjoy this because there's jokes there's physical comedy and you know that's just something that hulk didn't even want to go to it was about repression and anger so it just couldn't play the same way but yes i am happy that i'm back in this world this feels of the same piece at this point with the last movie and i think sam rockwell was a great choice to play kind of the second rate tony stark rockwell was one of their early choices to play Tony Stark before they hired Downey. Yeah, and I had heard that too. I think that would have been a pretty good substitute. You know, no one can be Downey in this role, but it's funny if you recalibrate it just a few hairs, you get an awesome foil and villain for Stark. It feels like, yeah, this should be the battle of the movie. These two minds. And of course, we're going to like Downey because he's just a little bit better, a little bit funnier, a little bit more loose than this uptight, not quite as good a wannabe. Yeah, because Rockwell's jokes, though, are great in how they just don't fly. Like, when he says, I love to leave my door unlocked when I leave the house, but this ain't Canada. And he just doesn't get the same reaction from the audience that Tony gets. <laughs> but his jokes are just as good. That's the thing. I'm laughing just as much. They're the same joke writer, but yeah, it's just, what can you say? We love Downey and we don't like you, at least in this world. I mean, I do like Sam Rockwell here, but yes, they set up the conflicts for everybody right here and then. And then we get Rhodey 2.0. <laughs> I love his introduction, the way that he just walks in and goes, it's me, I'm here, deal with it. That's his first line. It's like acknowledging the recast. I don't know that Terrence Howard made so much of an impression in the last movie that I would be angry that he's not coming back. I did like him. I thought he was an unexplored, fun secondary character. I was looking forward to return and to get into the suit. Don Cheadle's a little bit different of an actor. He plays people that tend to be a little bit more tamped down. I get a little less funny off of Don Cheadle. I know he's on a TV show right now where it's comedy, and he's been in the lighthearted Oceans movies, but for the most part, I don't know. I'll go ahead and say it. I would prefer if Terrence Howard were here, but I know that there was trouble between him and a lot of people that he ends up working with. He's not really a very popular actor. Yeah, depending who you ask, there's that he was the highest paid actor of the last movie. They didn't want to pay him. They tried to give him a pay cut. His agent said no in an attempt to negotiate, and Marvel said, you said no, we're recasting, and the, the way way Howard found out is by reading the headline that Cheadle, his former Picket Fences co-star, they worked together on Picket Fences, got the role instead, but I think it comes down to Favreau didn't like Howard. Apparently there were a lot of scenes of Howard that Howard didn't play the way Favreau wanted and ended up being cut. There would have been more Rhodey in part one, except for the Howard and Favreau just not getting along, so I think when Favreau saw an out, he jumped at it. 
Mm. Well, when we see John Cheadle in here, he comes out basically looking like a rat. Like, he's brought out to put his friend in check. He has to read his report out of context that basically says, this is a bad idea to let one man have control of this much power. And I don't feel like I ever see the friendship warm up. I was like that in the last movie, if you recall that review, though. You were, yes. But I saw in the last movie, he was the guy trying to keep Tony legit, kind of keep him honest. And Tony, you know, would bring in the booze and the girls, but he was the one trying to keep the agenda on point. And here, I feel like now it's more like he is an army boy, and he, for most of this movie, is really not going to even struggle with the fact that this is supposedly his friend. I thought it was a logical extension from the first film, the way they characterize Rhodey here. He's military. Military. Yeah. He, ultimately, he answers to the government. He may be your friend. He might like the weapons you sell him, but he has a different boss. Tony Stark is not his boss, and he has to report to that higher authority. I think it's a good conflict. You have these people that are friends, but they have different ends that they seek. And the funny thing is, Stuart, I'm the exact opposite. I think this movie, maybe not Cheadle, because you're right, Cheadle isn't playing very loose, and I liked Howard's portrayal a little bit better, but the movie here tells me in ways the last one didn't that Rhodey is truly Tony's friend. He's protecting Tony against the government. He's kind of shielding Tony from the government taking his suit. And the only time Rhodey has to turn on that is when he, it's what Rhodey thinks is needed to be done in his own judgment. But out of his protection of Tony for the first half of the movie, I got a friendship here that I didn't get anything out of the last movie. Well, I agree, Jacob. I did like this as a conflict and as a story arc. I think it makes it intriguing. What I'm saying is that if that were the story arc, Don Cheadle makes it harder for me to see what you're seeing, Arnie, which is the friendship part. We have a lot of scenes in the first act of Don Cheadle saying, hey, they're going to take this away from you, buddy. Well, when we get to the point where they take it away from him, <laughs> I have a problem with how that's done. Well, if Justin Hammer is the doppelganger of Tony Stark, kind of the less successful version, we also have the opposite of what Tony Stark was when he was a captive in Ivan Vanko, who, much like Tony creating his arc reactor in a cave, is in Russia with no money, but has the plans and is building his own suit. Yeah, we get two foils for Tony. That seems redundant. Okay, yeah, <laughs> Ivan. All right, well, you know, that's kind of uh, where this movie goes. I feel like there's a lot of ideas that are repeated and extrapolated upon. And yeah, there is the wronged Russian... All right, let me break this down. So Howard Stark in the 60s worked on the arc reactor thing that his son eventually turned into the powering battery for Iron Man. I gotta ask, did Howard Stark do that? I thought it was Tony and Obadiah who created the arc reactor, because they have that right. moment. Right, I agree. The last movie gave me that impression, but this movie is telling me that him and Anton Vanko in the 60s for five years, it was only five years before the guy gets kicked out of the country, but for five years, they worked on these plans as well. But I'll accept that as a retcon, if that's what it is, or whether there's comics that can explain all these connections, I'll accept that. But he somehow, for selling plutonium, is banished to a remote obscurity where he's not allowed to work on things and has a son who also can't show his engineering genius. Why doesn't the guy pick up a wire and welding torch until 
his father is dead. All of this seems very, very strange to me that we're now a decade into a new millennium and this son has only just now, at this moment, six months after Tony Stark is Iron Man, decided he's going to be Iron Man 2. Well, you get the impression that Ivan didn't exactly have a good upbringing. He may be a scientific genius, but he served some time, judging by those tattoos. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of a graft one. There was a Cronenberg movie that had come out just a couple years prior, Eastern Promises, that sort of popularized the idea of Russian mafia. That's kind of what it looked like, the teeth, the tattoo. I'm not sure where the bird came in, but <laughs> let's just face it, Mickey Rourke is the portrait for hard living. Yeah. I mean, he used to be a matinee idol. He used to be the guy you'd want to cast as Superman. And then when he had that failed boxing career, I mean, now he gets to play Whiplash. Now he gets to look like this and <laughs> get uncaged. I mean, I, I feel like this could have been played by Nick Cage here. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even sure the tattoos were fake. I, I see him in a few <laughs> other movies, and he's a rough-looking dude. Funny story, uh, most of the tattoos were fake, but you know about Mickey Rourke's Chihuahua, right? I don't know about Mickey Rourke's Chihuahua. Oh, I remember some story about this, yeah. He had a Chihuahua that he loved, absolutely loved, and it died. And like a paparazzi was making fun of him for crying over his dog. Oh, he did that in an interview. That's right. It was a Barbara Walters special, yeah. Yeah, Mickey Rourke kicked the living <laughs> out of this reporter for making fun <laughs> of him and his chihuahua. <laughs> now, the reason I bring up the chihuahua is the chihuahua's name was Loki. <laughs> Mickey Rourke has a big, in real life, a big tattoo on his neck that says Loki. So while they had to give him a whole bunch of fake tattoos, they also had to remove one because of Thor. They could have oh, just wow. cast him in the next movie then. <laughs> <laughs> well, it only he is cast here only because he was riding the very brief window in which he looked like a star again. I mean, Mickey Rourke was about as out as you could be until The Wrestler. And, you know, this as timing happens, he got an Oscar nomination, came close to winning, I think. And he was a big get, I think for them as the big baddie hot on the heels of his award-nominated performance. He is perfectly cast in this, though. I think, much like Robert Downey as Tony Stark, Mickey Rourke makes this role, because it's not very fleshed out in the writing. It really isn't. And, I mean, Mickey Rourke, he may look a little off-kilter, but a little. he's really fucked <laughs> up, because... Avro said in one of the materials that Mickey Rourke, like, would call him from Russia. On his own, after being cast, he went to Russia to tour prisons to make sure it was authentic. <laughs> and he would start sending pages of things for people to translate into Russian for him to say. And the bird, all Rourke. Rourke yeah. made this role from what wasn't on the page. And I think it really works for this movie. I love him in this. Yeah, I'm not saying that he isn't the right choice. I don't know about perfect choice. I don't know about that Russian accent. There are details. The bird, do we need it? Like I said, Nicolas Cage would have been here. Maybe it would have been Jelly Beans. But <laughs> I feel like there are several actors that commit to an intense level. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis being another. There are a lot of people that could have been whiplash, but what Mickey really brings is the undisguisable fact that a lot of his features are just from hard living. You know, he doesn't just talk the talk. He has lived a very full life already, and it just, yeah, he wears it. He looks like he's come from a Siberian prison, which is presumably where we pick up with this character. 
I have problems with the Whiplash character. I don't think they're Rourke's fault. It's just the writing. But what Rourke brings to the character, there's moments that I'm really gripped. Uh, some of his monologues, some of the looks later on in the film when he's being stripped of his shoes and stuff. Just the way he stays calm but still looks very, very menacing. Those things that Rourke brings to it, I enjoy. The character overall, though, doesn't really engage me a whole lot. No, I felt bad for him, and he had to do one of those stare at the heavens and scream things. Early on, like, first scene, it's like, here, right, your dad dies, and you have <laughs> oh. to roar at God. I mean, I was like, that is not the way you want to start out trying to create a bad guy foil for this. I thought that was painful, and I, and I was pained for Rourke. But, yeah, he keeps his dignity here. This is an underwritten villain, and honestly, I'll go ahead and say it, I don't even know that we need this villain other than we need a supervillain. He doesn't really serve much of a role in this plot, I find him consistently the least thing interesting about the debates and the themes of the movie, but it is Mickey Rourke. He is selling you on the physicality, and my God, yes, when he breaks out that whip, it's quite a thing. The thing is, if he was all dark brooding, screaming at God, if he was so out of place in this movie, I would have a real problem. It's the fact that he's like, I want my bird. You know, all those little talking scenes that he has are just as funny as anything Sam Rockwell is doing. And so that is why he works for me. He's not just a badass, but he's a badass in an amusing way. Right. He has no sense of humor about himself, but he does end up being comical <laughs> regardless, and intentionally. But he's threatening, too, because once we finally get to the big scene in Monaco, whoa! I mean, this might be the best scene in any of the Marvel movies. Yes, Tony, in a another bit of hubris, has gone to Monaco. I love this scene again because it reunites him with Rockwell. And if you didn't get that Justin Hammer was a second-rate Tony Stark, he's getting Tony Stark's sloppy seconds. I love this interview and the whole play with this reporter from the first film. As soon as Stark walks in, it's over. Justin Hammer thought he got his moment in the sun, and nope, Tony's going to take that from you. Yeah. I was so upset the moment I saw they brought back Christine Everhart from the beginning of the first film, but what they do with her is actually so funny that I'm glad they brought the minor character back. And Robert Downey Jr.'s line, Hammer needs a slot, Christine. Also at this moment, they introduce the fact that Tony is kind of at a critical point. 50... 3% toxicity. Is that why he gets in the race? Is this a bucket list choice? Because I feel like the Tony Stark we know would have gotten into the race anyway, that he would have done it for fun and thrills, and maybe that's how it looks to the crowd. The fact that it's directly comes right after he finds out, whoa, my blood is half poison. That's why he gets in the car, right? It's a death wish. Oh, yeah, he definitely has a suicidal or at least a reckless streak going on because he's dying. So, yeah, why not? I'm a recluse already, and now I'm dying. I'm just going to amp it up. I own a race car. What's the point if I can't drive it? It was an odd, dramatic choice that could slip by you. You might just think, oh, that's Tony being Tony. But because he's dying, they don't let you forget the fact that there are things that are weighing on Tony's mind that he can't laugh off, even though he tries to. I don't think it was necessarily a bucket list thing. I don't think Tony Stark has a bucket list. He just does, right? And yeah. I think, though, that even more caution is being thrown to the wind than usual because now he's becoming reckless. And I never read a lot of Iron Man comics, but I'm familiar from talking to people about the demon in the bottle storyline where Tony becomes an alcoholic and becomes unhinged. And I think, Jacob, isn't that what creates War Machine is War Machine takes over while 
Tony's like an AA or something. Yeah, I mean, Demon in the Bottle is probably the most famous Iron Man storyline where he becomes a drunk, loses his fortune, and so War Machine, yeah, takes over in his place while he's, you know, attending AA meetings, getting sober again. So I took it as kind of that sort of thing where he's going off the rails, but is it a direct result of that? I never took it as that, and I've seen this movie a good half dozen times by this point, and I've never taken it as a direct result of the toxicity. Honestly, Stuart, you've talked several times in these podcasts about the ticking clock i thought they were just constantly giving us a shot of what the clock was as that toxicity ramps up i thought that was more for the audience's benefit than tony's and i do love though that he gets in the car and even though he owns the car the guy who was supposed to race it's still really pissed off about it was that mr fantastic because he's wearing his outfit (laughs) (laughs) i think mr fantastic was wearing nascar's outfits (laughs) and then yes as you said Stuart best scene in the movie. Yeah, what a way to peak early. I almost hate that it comes this early, but at the same time, this movie has been a lot of talk. All of it fun, but a lot of talk. It's time to get to some action, and they are here, ready for it. 34 minutes in, we get an awesome takedown of Stark's hubris. Everything about this scene works for me. From the score to Mickey Rourke walking out, and usually I would roll my eyes at the cliche, the bad guy who just stalks in, he's in no hurry, he walks away from explosions, I'm so tired of that, but the way Rourke plays it, and the way that this guy proves himself to be a badass, cutting race cars in half, it actually supersedes the cliches. Oh yeah, it's cliche, but they twist it. They amp it up. It's not just an explosion I'm walking away from. I'm walking towards a Grand Prix race car, and I'm going to whip it in half. (laughs) Awesome. That's why I love comic books. Yeah, no, I agree. He's even wearing a helmet that says intervention on it. I mean, they couldn't be more blatant about what they're doing here. But yeah, it's a slow-mo, badass. It works. The suit burns off of him. He pulls out that whip that we saw him creating, and he does the whole routine with it. I'm in awe when the car goes up. And yeah, the way that when Favreau and Gwyneth Paltrow mow him down, he still cuts their car in half with the whip. This just great stuff here with that whip. I'm loving it. And then the suitcase armor. Uh, uh, This is why I saw the movie. (laughs) This is why I saw this movie. Because in the trailer, they showed just a little couple of second bit about this suitcase armor. And I'm like, that's badass. I need to see this movie. It really rocks. It is my favorite Iron Man armor out of seven suits we've seen. Five is my winner. I love the colors. I love the face because this is a brutal battle. And so they made the face look like a little bit more of a scowl, a little bit more of a frown. He looks more serious as the five. He just looks harder. And it is a kick-ass suit. And the way it comes over him is phenomenal. It's just so inventive. And yet you buy it. You never roll your eyes at it. Or do you, Stuart? No, no. Yeah, you no complaints from me at this moment. I tend to be a little bit more aloof to the action moments than you guys do. I'm right there with the scene. And when he coils the whip around him and then it's burning down the suit in order to get to a whiplash and tear out his heart light, all of that was really awesome. It really is, like I said, not just the best scene in this movie. I think it's the best scene in any Marvel movie I can think of. This is it. This is I already early recommend if you want to see the best thing in a Marvel movie. It's in this movie. My only problem is the once you get Iron Man versus Whiplash, it seems like a very quick fight to me. It seems like he almost defeats Whiplash 
too easily. Yes, he gets whipped a couple of times. But again, I complained about this last week with the Hulk. If Iron Man could defeat him so quickly, why am I going to stay invested? Why am I going to care about what Whiplash is doing throughout the rest of this movie? Did Iron Man win? He might have won the battle, but the war was won by Whiplash here. It's a PR nightmare. He has been campaigning on the idea that only he can be Iron Man and that there's nobody else in the world that even comes close. This guy came real close, and the whole world was watching. It's a nightmare. Vanko said as much. He talks about making a god bleed. Vanko never thought he could beat Iron Man. The whole point was to just make him bleed. That's why, even though it looks like Iron Man won, when they're dragging Vanko away, what's he yelling? You lose, Stark! In his Transylvanian accent. And this is where I start to have some problems with the movie, because I like that. There's this great line that Rourke delivers. You know, there's blood in the water and the sharks will come. Except he's also the shark in this movie. Like, now are we going to get North Korea's Iron Man and, uh, you know, Cuba's Iron Man coming to attack America because they've seen the chink in the armor? I would love that, actually. That's what I was hoping for. And I talked about when Iron Man came out, the first film, they kind of had to revamp the comics because it was so popular. And where Tony Stark was in the Marvel Universe in the comics wasn't in a great spot. So they kind of rebooted the character. And the first storyline was great because, you know, it was this very 21st century storyline where over. Obadiah Stane's son is able to replicate Tony Stark's technology with like cell phone technology and people in Africa where, you know, they that's the technology they could afford. These cheap little cell phones are able to have this great power. And that's Tony Stark. You know, it gets leaked on WikiLeaks, how you make your own Iron Man suit like that seemed very 21st century. And I was hoping, OK, they're going to go there. They're going to have, you know, this big leak where all these different countries start attacking. They're able to replicate it finally. They could go anywhere from this point in the movie. I agree with you. Because they've introduced the idea that Iron Man isn't unique to the world. He's not the one little snowflake. That it can be duplicated fairly successfully. Yes, we could have it go from anywhere. But it makes sense within the context. We've already introduced a lot of characters. They've got to keep it with Whiplash and the people we know. It makes sense that he would go be Hammer's boy. But I gotta ask one thing. What if Tony decided he wasn't going to race? What if that didn't happen? That was an unplanned move. He couldn't just walk into the cafe and whip things around. The whole revenge thing was built around the premise that Tony would at some point be in a very public spotlight, and that's when he would attack? Well, no. Whiplash knew Stark was in town, and if he started whipping cars, that Iron Man would show up. I don't think he necessarily needed him to be driving the car, but Iron Man would fly in to save the Ah. day. Oh, I see. Okay. So it was only an extra layer that he gets to hit the car that actually had Tony Stark in it. Yes. Now, Stuart, you said there were a lot of characters. There's one that's been in and out of this movie so far that we haven't mentioned. Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow. Yes. Who I presumed when the first time I saw this movie as being the other enemy. I don't know what Black Widow is. I still don't know what Black (laughs) Widow is. So it meant nothing to know that in these early scenes, she was working within Stark Industries. I know who Scarlett Johansson is, so I know to pay attention to her, but I don't know why. And I can only presume, because I saw her in the trailer kicking ass, that she's going to be a villain. I don't even know if they mentioned the name Black Widow in this film. I never got it from the movie. I got it because you guys and... Marketing. Exactly. I have to say, she feels to me like one element too many. You're saying, why have two villains? I like it because, like you said, they kind of complement each other, and the two combined can perhaps overcome Tony Stark, though neither alone is Tony Stark. 
And I like that there's the dichotomy. Each is a part of Tony Stark. But Gwyneth Paltrow hasn't had a whole lot to do as CEO. She's too busy running a company to be on screen very much. And when she is, she's kind of like the harping wife, isn't she? Tony! All the time. So you throw this other one in, and it doesn't quite form a love triangle, and it doesn't quite do much of anything. Tony's attracted to her, Gwyneth Paltrow rolls her eyes, but never seems really jealous, and she's in and out of these scenes, but I kind of feel like she was shoehorned into this production. Kinda. You might be right there. I've had several times where I was watching this movie and I thought, oh, this isn't about helping and servicing this story. This is about getting her in here to set up the big story, the movie we're building to. Scarlett Johansson, of course, is going to be Black Widow in this upcoming Avengers movie, so you gotta get her in early. We can't introduce all these characters new in the next one, so yes. Is that the biggest reason why she's here? Probably. But I don't know. My frame of reference for this thing is Catwoman and Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman specifically, you know? There's a character who's loyal to no cause or man, and I just presumed naturally that Scarlet would follow suit. It was a surprise to me to find out eventually she totes the party line. I mean, she really isn't against Stark, even though she's sort of a spy in his midst. Is she there to help him? Well, she's an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. I think she's there to keep tabs on him. Okay. Well, he's pretty public. I don't know what she would learn that they didn't know, except maybe that he's dying. And it seems like, yes, the functionality of her appearing in this way is confusing to me. Because you're right, the other way to play it would be to make Gwyneth Paltrow jealous. I don't think Paltrow is jealous. I think that she's mostly concerned about sexual harassment lawsuits (laughs) when Tony makes a move for her. But that truly, you know, she's seen Tony hook up a million times. It would not hurt her feelings anymore to see him bad scarlet well i don't know if it's the writing or if it's scarlet just the way she acts you know the only film i think i've ever seen her in was ghost world and i enjoyed her in that good movie comic book based movie i guess i've seen lost in translation what about the prestige where batman and wolverine and black widow all star I haven't seen that one. But I thought they brought her in here to be a pretty face because she doesn't say a whole lot. I don't know if they're trying to just shoehorn her in because they needed her for Avengers and maybe that's why they didn't give her a lot of line. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just her. She seems kind of bitchy to me. Maybe that's just the way she's playing the role. I am going to say this much. I was very skeptical that Scarlett Johansson, who I've seen in a lot of movies, actually, could play this type of superwoman. It just, she never seemed like an actress that personified the Angelina Jolie type. You know, I don't see her as athletic or energetic. You know, usually she's kind of lethargic. Maybe it's just her association with Sofia Coppola movies. But yeah, I usually think of her as sleepy and sort of sultry and a slow burn. And the idea that she could be a ninja was kind of ridiculous to me. I thought she was credible. Once she finally suits up and does her thing, I know that she's being assisted by a lot of costumers and editors and wire foo and all of that. But I did not dislike the character. I did go with what she's doing here, but I was mostly surprised that she ends up just being sort of an ambassador to S.H.I.E.L.D., really. That's her function as I see it. I didn't like her in this movie. I really didn't. I was very disappointed because, again, there was a scene cut that was in the trailer of Tony Stark showing her how to fire the repulsors. And 
why would he show Black Widow how to fire the iron repulsors if she wasn't getting involved with the tech? Well, I watched the deleted scenes. It turned out he was just hitting on her. But it was very disappointing to me the way she was used. And yeah, I've seen Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation, The Prestige, some of her kitty roles. I've always liked her performance. In this movie, she comes off dead fish. There's no emoting. She just stalks in and out of every scene. Maybe she was more focused on doing her own stunts than delivering her own lines. But I didn't like her here. I thought she was the weakest link. But I have to say, I think she's looking better in Avengers trailers. You're saying that this film has one villain too many. What about Rhodey? Isn't he a bad guy too? Because once we get to this big party scene, he is totally an aggressor to the Stark way of thinking. Stark has been uh, the whole time advocating that Iron Man is him and no one else can have him. Rhodey is saying they're coming to take it by force. They're coming to take it by force. They aren't coming to take it by force. Rhodey takes it by force. <laughs> Technically, he doesn't take it by force. He just takes it. and <laughs> I don't know what you call that house party. <laughs> But he could have just flown off. He could have just jacked it. Instead, he does it for, I guess, noble reasons. Now, up until this point, I've kind of liked Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. He didn't work for me as well the first half of this movie as the last one. It's a different performance he's trying to give. It's not as fun. But I realized that they're trying to portray Tony Stark at his lowest when he's drunk wearing the Iron Man suit at his birthday bash. But I actually started to feel embarrassed for Robert Downey Jr. walking around in that big plastic suit. Because there are scenes <laughs> where it's obviously a big plastic suit. It's nowhere near as sleek as the CGI that they've used in the past. And he's like falling over and roaring at people like he's in a monster movie. And I'm like... Ooh, those are some bad ad-lib choices there, and you look a little silly. You know, we talk so much about how this is just Robert Downey Jr. playing Robert Downey Jr., and it's weird that the worst scene is when he's at his most Robert Downey Jr.-ness. Inebriated, reckless, you know, just a party animal, and it doesn't seem to be as natural as all the other Tony Stark moments. I don't know. I kind of like the Daft Punk joke when he's at the DJ tables. When he plays Dre and Tupac, California Love, I thought it was kind of funny. It made me laugh. I was like, yeah, it is kind of like an East Coast, West Coast beef he's having with Hammer, you know? Like, I don't think that this moment is bad. I get the point of it. You know, they set it up where he knows he's about to die. In the previous scene, he's really asking Scarlet, how would you celebrate your last birthday? And so he's gotten smashed and decides to be, you know, a raging asshole. I think the scene <laughs> plays right. I mean, I'm wondering what's he going to do with Gwyneth. That's the one that I'm really wondering. If you're giving yourself license to do anything you wanted, will he finally make the real play for Gwyneth? And when he does, it's it's so sloppy and embarrassing. I mean, feeling embarrassed for him is the right feeling to have for Tony at this point. Sympathy and pity is where I'm at with this character. What I don't like is when his quote-unquote friend decides to break it up. Wait, wait. Yes, he is a friend because as much as he works for the government, he keeps warning Tony, hey, be careful. They want your stuff. And here's Tony just basically making it real easy for the government to walk in and say, look, you screwed it up. You said we could trust you, that you could keep world peace. But you go and you get a little alcohol in you and you start shooting up the place. I feel that he's trying to intervene and be a friend here. And 
by doing it as a friend, it's in a controlled manner. First of all, Rhodey stuck his neck out for Stark, and this is how he was repaid is by seeing Stark wearing it and shooting champagne bottles. But also, by doing it this way, he's taking the Mark II suit. He doesn't take the Mark III, the armed one. He takes the unarmed Mark II suit and delivers it in a very controlled fashion, both fulfilling his obligations and yet still making it so that they don't have everything Tony has. Wow, so you guys are with this moment. Very much so. I mean, if I saw one of my friends doing this, I'd try to stop him too. And if it involved stealing some of his equipment to do it, yes. Taking it back to the military, I get it. I understand it. And yeah, I think it's the right thing. And I love the fight between the two of them. It's no whiplash Iron Man because it's more silly, but it's a fun fight. I hate it. This is actually the first big misstep of the movie. I actually got mad when I saw the scene because I thought, wow, Terrence Howard wouldn't do this. I, you know, I know Terrence Howard would do whatever the script was said, but I just. Yeah, but only for 20 million. (laughs) But now we're not in Iron Man, the movie I enjoyed last time. Now it's doing something and I'm just, I'm not jiving with it. I hear what you guys are saying and it's actually helping me understand the moment more than I did when I'm watching it. But at the time, it looked like a complete about face that seemed, I don't know. Tony's always been this guy. Like, how could he be this offended at this moment? It seems like quite a betrayal to blow up his place, take his suit, take it to the military, which supposedly he was protecting it from, and then Gwyneth not even doing anything about it. I mean, all right, maybe Tony thinks he's going to die and he doesn't care, but Gwyneth, you've just inherited a company and you watched a man before your eyes steal your valued asset. You're not going to (laughs) litigate? Well... On the other hand, I have to say, this fight never felt lethal to me. Have you ever had one of those situations where you and a friend, and you're still friends, and you're going to be friends, but you get to that point that you need to beat each other up? Yeah, it's a drunk fight. I get that, yeah. (laughs) And you pull your punches. You're still friends, but yet you gotta have that power play. You gotta see who's stronger. You gotta smack the other person over the head with a board. You know what? Here's the thing. If it had just ended there, and he gets the helmet off of him, and takes his suit away and Tony can't have the suit anymore. I get it. Dry out, sober up, act mature, grow up. I get that. It's the leaving and taking it to the Air Force that I find appalling. That's what he was supposed to be preventing, and he actually does it, and then outfits it with weapons and turns it into the very thing that Tony did not want it to be. He is, at this point, the fourth villain. I still don't see him as a villain. I see him more as an independent, and he's doing what he thinks is right, which to some degree, is following orders. There's several times where he goes, I'm following orders. And that's what the military life is. And again, he stuck out his neck professionally to protect Tony. This is how Tony repaid him was by acting like this. I could almost see a, yeah, F you, Tony. I risked myself for you. I'm just going to give the government what they want, kind of, to hell with it attitude. Okay. Yeah, I think they had established that the government was going to come in and take... I mean, this was their perfect excuse. You know, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, until you get a little alcohol in you. And so here was their excuse to come and take that suit. And you know what? Hey, let's give him a crappier suit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he takes the two. Why the two? Why take the one that all it has is an underpowered repulsor in the palm? Why not take the three, which is sitting right there, that has the shoulder cannons that can shoot terrorists in the head and the arm missiles? He takes the two, and I can only read that as well a maybe it's because war machine is gray not red and gold but b (laughs) he's taking one that's at least a step down that is appeasing both sides to some degree still 
No, it's the one in the last movie that he said next time. I mean, they're fulfilling a promise. <laughs> they told us last time that they were going to get the, the character, if not the actor, in this suit, and so they did. I also just like the music to the fight. You know, music can make so much of it, and to have Beastie Boys and Queen and everything scoring the fight, DJAM, R.I.P., yeah, I know, and kind of sobering when you realize that he was a recovering drug user who actually, in this story about alcohol abuse, actually died probably shortly a few months after filming this. But you talk about arming the suit. Another one of my absolute favorite scenes is a Sam Rockwell monologue discussing the weaponry that he can put on that suit. And Rockwell just is gripping me here. I'm kind of turning on Tony, and not just because of the drunkenness. Maybe this is the entire movie's intent. Maybe Downey just played me. But I'm starting to not care to see him on screen. I'm not caring where he's going with this. But Rockwell, when he's talking about all those guns and the ex-wife and everything, I had a big smile on my face. I did not enjoy this scene mostly because I was still judging <laughs> Rhodey so harshly <laughs> for allowing it to happen. It had nothing to do with Rockwell. But while Rockwell is getting the ex-wife ready, Nick Fury shows up for an obligatory scene. Not being a Marvel person, I'm expecting Sam Jackson to appear at the end of this. I did not know that getting the Avengers together would actually be a main story thread right here and there. In the middle of all these other story threads, as if enough weren't already going on, the movie is going to literally hit the brakes and say, and now it's time to talk about the Avengers. <laughs> I hate this. I do. Oh, there's so many things wrong with this scene. And I just get the impression that Favreau was able to do what he wanted to make a good movie the first time. And by this point, two movies later, they were so corporate and so planning. And so, all right, Favreau, do whatever you want. But you must do this and this and this and this and this. Now go. Couldn't they have saved this for the end? I mean, I don't understand why in the middle of this, with Tony dying, an evil Russian building new suits, and then the military also developing their own suits, Scarlett Johansson running around, why are we going to be in a donut shop? With Sam Jackson. Why is this happening here? Because it's Sam Jackson. That's why. I mean, come on. Again, another actor in this film just playing himself. Like, does he ever change the way he delivers his lines? Yes, he does. Because here he is playing himself. Whereas in the first Iron Man movie, I felt like he was playing somebody who was being very serious. He was playing the very stoic Sam Jackson character. Here, he's sitting back. I think he's about to talk about a big kahuna burger. <laughs> it does have a Tarantino feel just because of the, you know, I know Randy's Donuts. I know where this is. It's just got that vibe to it. But they're not doing a very good job selling S.H.I.E.L.D., are they? I mean, they become the antagonist for the next 20 minutes. Agent Coulson comes in and is now the unfun babysitter that wants to keep him under house arrest. And I'm now seeing S.H.I.E.L.D. as party poopers. I mean, like, they can't fix Iron Man. They can't save him. But they do. They treat his symptoms, but they really don't do anything. No, they don't. I don't see it. They leave the briefcase that has the magical clue. I figured Jacob, of all people, would have a problem with the magical black man coming in giving all the answers. 
it's Sam Jackson, so he gets a pass. I have a problem <laughs> with what's done, though. Like, we talked about in the first Iron Man film how layered it was and how all these things were deliberately done. Here, it's so half-assed. Like, here's a movie about legacies, fathers and sons, and now we're just going to call it out. Your father had something for you to do, and you're the son, and here's all the magical mystery things. You're not actually going to have to search for it. We're going to force-feed it all right to you. Yes, I do have a problem with it, Arnie. And, moreover, I kind of hinted at this earlier when I was pointing out they're now saying Howard Stark created the Arc Reactor. So Howard Stark created the Arc Reactor. Howard Stark, founding member of S.H.I.E.L.D., is dropped in the scene. Howard Stark leaves a bunch of research, including a tape, where he looks into the lens and goes, Hi, Tony, I've developed the cure for your illness that I don't know you're going to have and I don't have the technology to build. Why don't you go fix yourself with my plans? What makes Tony special if all he's doing is riding his dad's coattails? What has Tony created at this point, except a suit of armor? What had he created at the age 10 when he's knocking over the model monorail, upsetting his dad? Like, yeah. I like these scenes, though. I do want to say I like all the archival footage. There's something fun about seeing Howard Stark as Walt Disney. You know, I think that's what it looks like. He created Epcot Center, and it's not as overt as what you guys are saying. He's not saying I've created the solution to your disease. He wouldn't even anticipate that his son would have this blood toxicity poisoning thing. What he's indicating is that the future that he's trying to build is a legacy he wants Stark to continue. I think that works thematically. I don't have a problem. Yeah, he says he knows about this unlimited source of energy. They just don't have the technology to make it, and it's going to be up to his son. But for some reason, he has to be super cryptic about it. Like, I don't get why it's a mystery. Like, were there evil Russian organization that Natasha once came from in Russia? Are they trying to get these plans? Was he afraid Anton was going to copy his plans for this super secret element? Like, I don't get why it had to be in the form of the expo. I think that's kind of cool if you think about it as Cold War. You're right. There was a lot of spies out there. And you're right. It's not done very well. But now that you've actually pointed it out, I like it. It is not done well. That is what I want to emphasize. Individually, I like a lot of moments that happen in this 20-minute arc. As a combined flow of the movie, it completely kills the acceleration dead, particularly for popcorn entertainment. We're here for Iron Man. This thing needs to move. It's about acceleration. It's about moving forward. And these 20 scenes feel aimless. Tony is stumbling around in a myopic despair, and there is very little joy to how it all comes together. He feels lost. This movie feels lost. The story strands feel lost in these 20 minutes. And 20 minutes is an eternity in a popcorn entertainment. I agree. But you guys still haven't answered. What now makes Tony special if his father did all the work? Um, he synthesized an element that they call out as being unsynthesizable. Yes, Jarvis is like, this can't be made. Okay, well, I have a montage and a real genius laser. I can make it. This is my biggest problem with the movie. You can't say, I'm going to do magic. I'm going to make something that's impossible to make. And then you make it and you don't give an answer. I leveled my laser beam with a fake Captain America shield. That's why I was able to do it. Like, this is bullcrap. You have to have an explanation. You have to give a reason why you were able to do the impossible. I'm with you on this. The fact that he solves the problem so easily, overnight, perhaps. It's not very clear how much time... 
and in such a bumbling way. I mean, there's this whole long drawn out in a joke that he buys these strawberries from a street vendor and we get Gwyneth back because she hasn't been there for a long time. And like, literally, I don't know what they're doing. It's so confusing to me when he steals the diorama. And <laughs> honestly, it is 20 minutes of me being lost. You guys are putting things together. I didn't even put together because I feel like I'm not seeing connection from the last scene to this scene to the next scene. I have no idea what's happening. And they're not even paying attention themselves. I mean, there's the big scene where Coulson's like, we have you on lockdown. We're taking away your phones. You're not allowed to leave. The next scene, he's buying strawberries. (laughs) How did he get out? Yeah, I wonder what happened in the creative process. It does feel, it has the look and feel of Marvel intervening with the story and saying, look, we have our own agenda. And in doing so, yeah, great. You really set up for the Avengers movie. It's crippling to Iron Man 2, what they do here in the middle of this movie. It's devastating. Completely, completely agree. And this is coming from somebody who wanted nothing more than to build up to the Avengers, but not this way. I'm reminded of a movie we're going to be getting to, Spider-Man 3, where the director has one vision, the studio has another, and the result is, instead of finding a way to make them merge logically, you're just like, we're going to do both and just throw it all in. And it just comes off as this uneven mess. And this actually made me dread Avengers, if you can believe it. I walked out of here like, I don't want more of what that was. I can believe it. Yes, you do feel that. If it is going to be this chaotic assembling the team and they're going to drain the character that I like so much of what makes him fun, yeah, I'm not on board either. And I want to emphasize, it's not any particular scene here. I feel like any scene that I see in this 20 minutes could work if it was connected to a flow and a story arc. But it is lost in the woods. Like, it's too many aimless moments with a magical resolution, a Dussex Machina that just solves it all so easily that you don't feel like characters overcome their problems. Tony had so much that he needed to do in this 20 minutes, and it's done for him. Wouldn't it have been so much better if it hadn't been his father, but something Ivan or Anton developed? Yeah, I agree with that. Maybe even the U.S. military and that they learned to share secrets because I'm not sure how that storyline ever got solved either. And I think it's telling that Favreau isn't returning. He had already signed a contract. He has a producer's credit on Avengers, a fairly uninvolved producer from what I can tell because he hasn't done any talking about it or publicity for it. He signed a name. He helped get Whedon into the director's chair. And then he's not coming back for Iron Man 3. I think... It's telling that Iron Man 2 wasn't Iron Man 1 for him, because beforehand he was all about the trilogy, all about seeing it through to part 3. After 2, he's like, eh, I'm kind of done. Wait, doesn't he play Happy Hogan, though? Maybe he'll come back for a paycheck as an actor. Maybe they'll recast him with Kevin James. I mean, I feel like if they'll do that with Rhodey, they can do that to him. I mean, hey, maybe Val Kilmer. I mean, it is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang's director coming out back for three. I'd see Val Kilmer as Happy Hogan. He's got the weight. Yeah. Uh, But to your point, I normally at this point would cite bad direction, bad screenwriting, the principles involved. Because it is a part of this larger assemblage, and because this larger assemblage has made it so public that it is now time to talk about that and not any of these story things, it does. It looks like intervention. It looks like creative intervention from top brass. I feel bad for the screenwriters and for Favreau because I'm sure it wasn't written this way. I'm sure that in the original draft, 
plots of this movie, they would not resolve these storylines in this way. I don't even want to play the blame game on who of the creative talent is involved in this. This was a compromise instituted from high up on this movie to an extreme detriment to its fun and velocity. And when these scenes are over, we're at the climax of the movie. That's the biggest problem is it never has a chance to regain its footing after this. The first hour went well, but the second hour, I mean, it started going downhill for me at the party scene. It then hit the real depths. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm still enjoying some performances here. I think the image of Robert Downey Jr. eating a donut in a donut is a classic image to me now. But what works as scenes, like you say, doesn't work as a whole thing. And it just ends with him putting in his new triangle that is better than the circle, it's less poisonous, and flying off to save the day. Because during all of this, we have gotten the only scenes I've enjoyed are the ones between Vanko and Hammer, and that's not my bird, and drones better. Anytime they're on the screen, I'm enjoying it. But it's just them talking in front of computer screens and arguing with each other. Yes, the movie has stopped for 20 minutes, and then the problems have basically been resolved, and now it's time to fight. I agree. The middle of this script has been gutted. And uh, seriously, what happened with Rhodey? They're friends again. He's at the expo. Has it been a year? Has it taken, like, all of this a year for them to get, and this is the next expo? This is actually something I didn't understand at all, and I took the director's commentary to point out that it's in this movie six places that the expo actually goes on for a full year. And it ends at the end of a year. There are these things going on every night. It's like the World's Fair. And so when Tony Stark was with the Iron Man dancers at the beginning was the grand opening of something that would go on. So this was maybe a week later, and it's just still chugging. That is a terrible choice. I don't think the average person is going to make that connection. I know I did not make that connection. Um, I presume that the expo had been and gone and it was a kick girl chorus line of girls wearing arc lights and that was all over in ACDC and now it has been one year later and this is it. I mean, I did not understand it that way and I don't think it plays well that way. We know that Hammer is itching to quote-unquote take a dump in Stark's backyard. So why not have the end one at the Hammer Expo? Why not have him come to L.A. and show off his stuff? Here's what's even more confusing. This is Tony Stark. This is Stark Industries Expo. I'm thinking that if you're a corporation that wants to present at this expo, you need to apply for an opening, for a presentation, let them know what's going on. And here's your competitor with your stolen technology just showing up on the main stage, the CEO of Stark Industries in the crowd looking all confused like, Pepper, you deserve to be fired. The board needs to vote you out here. I agree with that. It seemed like a good idea at the time when you were just bringing the coffee, but now, girl, you cannot... I mean, that would be like at the new Mac world, having uh, Bill Gates come out to show what they're doing in PCs. I mean, you don't have this level of competitor appear at your expo. This needed to be a Hammer Expo. I agree. It confused the living crap out of me the first time I saw the movie. And if it takes a director's commentary to point out something in the movie, no matter how many times it's in there, it was poorly done. Yeah. And then, like I said, not only is Hammer presenting, but Rhodey is in the suit. Have they made amends? Did that scene ever take place in a cut scene? Did we ever get the, hey, I'm sorry I took your suit, or hey, I know why you took my suit? Well, actually, 
we do kind of get this. And it's in the actual cut after the fight. They don't have time to do it before the fight. But after the fight, there's the, I just want to say I'm sorry. Well, that's all I wanted to hear. And that was actually, there was a cut scene early on in the movie where Stark is trying to get Rhodey to apologize for something. And Rhodey just, it's not in his character to apologize. So we do get that apology. It's very quick. Stark doesn't really hold Rhodey responsible. Jacob and I don't really hold Rhodey responsible. <laughs> That's just me then, but I hate this. I hate this. I mean, Stark flies in and Rhodey's there and he's a little upset and Stark's like, trust me, and Rhodey does. But then, of course, Vanko takes control of everything, including Rhodey, by remote control. Yeah. Vanko is the one that I feel really doesn't work here. I believe that this battle really was about working this conflict out. I mean, I would have been okay if it was Rhodey versus Stark in this final battle. I don't understand the stakes of Ivan. I mean, part of it is I just don't understand why he hates Stark so much. Because his dad got thrown out of the U.S., that makes him hate every Stark. That's a real thin revenge motivation. Yeah, it's not well fleshed out. I think it's supposed to be, I should have your life, I would have your life if it wasn't for your father turning us in, but it's not fleshed out. It just is there. Yeah. Okay. Well, so he's here to crash the expo, and then you have more nonsense. Now it's time to give, what's her name, Natasha, Natalie, Scarlet. I'll just call her Scarlet, just for the sake of ease. Widow? Yeah, Widow, if if you know that, if you're comic book savvy. She's going to go to stop him, busting the Hammer Industries with the fat guy and stop him, and when they get there, it's too late, because the guy already went to him. <laughs> All right. Here's the problem with the climax. Too many things are going on. They're giving John Favreau more to do. John Favreau is giving John Favreau more to do by bringing out, I guess it's in the comic that Happy Hogan was a boxer. Yes. And so they're using those boxing skills. But what kills me is when I'm watching this in theaters, I see Black Widow kicking ass and I'm like, well, I'm glad she's finally doing something. She looks good doing it, both in the outfit and the moves. But it hit me this time when I'm really analyzing this film. Whose ass is she kicking? It's Hammer's security force. Rent a cop. Yeah, Rent mean, a not, cop. Not ninjas. Not even people that probably fire a weapon. People that are hired to sit in a chair all night. They are not <laughs> people that are hard to take down. And this is very disappointing that this is all Scarlet gets to take down. Well, I want to say I, I like the moves. I like a lot of the choreography in the scene, whether she's, you know, fighting <laughs> rent a cops or ninjas. There's some good choreography here i gotta ask though did it look weird to you guys i don't know if it was because of the black costume on the white setting or if they were digitally imposing her face on someone that could actually do these moves there was times where it just came off i don't know jumpy or not quite right it was a little stuttery on mine if you believe the press materials scarlet did all her own wire work Bull crap. But okay. If you believe the press materials, I have to ask, do you think Favreau added that scene in the boxing ring just so he could get his face between Scarlet's legs? <laughs> it was a cute scene. I, you know, you know where it was going to. It couldn't have been more telegraphed, but I enjoyed that early scene. I like the idea that these two would pair up and do something. I have no problem with it conceptually. It is credible as an action moment. My problems here are strictly that they fight people that are beneath them to accomplish nothing to get a guy who was coming for Stark anyway. I mean, it was a completely worthless tangent. 
Well, she does hack into the computer to free Rhodey from being under Ivan's control. Okay. So yeah. she, I, I, I'm right. sure she could have done that from a laptop at the expo, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. And it seems like that should have been something Gwyneth did with Hammer's computer guys right there to give Gwyneth something to do in this thing. All she does is basically take control of the police force to evacuate people. <laughs> it's very confusing. Yeah, I agree. I felt like she was set up to do such great things being in the CE role. I liked the idea that she was going to have more to do, but it's Gwyneth Paltrow. She doesn't work. It's telling. She didn't do any work in between Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2. She just doesn't do a lot of movies, and I'm not convinced that she wanted to play a bigger role here. I feel like she was there to party, and it's nothing to prove. I didn't get the sense that, yes, her character was very important to the story after she got gifted the Stark industries but we've gone through like the b and c and d action what about the a action the hammer drones this is what ivan had been building hammer wanted suits drones better and he built these drones i like their design i really do and i like that they're after the four branches of the military i don't know why you just wouldn't have a one drone fits all but i kind of like the hammer drones and i like that there's a number of bad guys in suits that if you're gonna have two good guys in suits you have to have a lot of bad guys right you need stormtroopers for your luke and han yeah and you know what? Thematically, I like this debate. I mean, I think that's something that we are literally dealing with in the world is, is it better to have unmanned satellites and probes and allow robots to fight our wars for us? Or do we still want to have a human in control? I mean, I feel like that is a debate that would be very satisfying as to be part of this conclusion. I like the choice of it being a man in a suit versus robots. I think that's good. I also think that War Machine needed to be the foe. I mean, can you fill me in on War Machine? What does he do in the comics? And how faithful is his role here? He does the same thing as Iron Man, but he has a big gun on his shoulder. Oh, he's Robin. I mean, he takes over the role for a while, but they do team up. Yeah. They're, I wouldn't say they're sidekicks. Okay, it's Batman and Robin. That's disappointing to me. I thought it was a foil for the enemy. I mean, there's so many foils here. There's so many people that are set up to be the villain for Stark, but they have set up two friends who are pitted against each other because of an ideology, and that's a good fight. An old Russian guy who's mad about what happened to his father is less interesting to me. And the fact that if Hammer hired him to make the drones, and then he offered also stole the suit and got the pimped out war machine only one of those can really be the main bad guy i mean i feel like that's too much well no you're right this is 20th century storytelling for the 21st century it is backwards we're still dealing with the cold war and russians and spies when it should be about hacking and leaking intellectual property on the internet so people could you know make bootlegs that's what this movie should be about but no they're going to go back to you know those james bond themes I don't mind what this movie's about. I don't think I would like a movie where it's about leaked plans on WikiLeaks for Iron Man suits. <laughs> I honestly, I'm going to say, Jacob, if you're writing that script, I don't want it. But <laughs> if I was writing that script, I wouldn't be on this show. I'd be making a lot more money. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, I like what they've done. I think that I understand why they brought in War Machine as part of the Marvel Universe. I don't mind him being a sidekick. I think the villains we have are enough, and we already had Rhodey versus Stark. I don't necessarily want that again. That said, we also had Stark versus Whiplash, and we're going to get that again. 
Well, here's what I guess what I'm saying. I perceived War Machine as a villain for Iron Man because of the way he was taken away from Iron Man and that unresolved quality to it. I just never made the connection that he was his assistant. That did not play out to me at all in this final fight. I've never gotten that he is the Robin, by the way. I, no, and I did not say that. I said they team up. That doesn't mean they're sidekicks. No, he's kind of his own thing. I mean, it is very different ideals okay. because of the... Rhodey's connection to the military. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Somewhere balls got dropped, and I did not make these connections. Conceptually, some of these ideas are rich, but at the end of the day, what we get is a very ADD fight at Epcot Center Arboretum. You know, I feel like all of a sudden they're standing side by side shooting at the Star Wars robots and what I thought was really cool about the setup of this movie is dribbling away. I like the action in the end. It's a little bit too much CGI. I never quite get a good feel for Whiplash in his total body armor. He was badass enough in a pit crew jumper let alone this whole suit of armor that doesn't seem to help him very much. Yeah, I don't get it. They do that palm face-off thing that they did when they fought each other at Tony's house to defeat Whiplash, even though he has the same armor as they're wearing. I guess it's because he refused to put his little faceplate down. That was his one vulnerability. Not Mm -hmm. sure how it hurt him. So Whiplash just had to put his face shield down. He would have been fine. I think that even if the faceplate had been down, it was when Rhodey and Iron Man teamed up and used their dual repulsors together to create the thing that... And I don't think it would have killed Whiplash. It just disabled him, and he then did the Harry Carey Predator explosive thing. I'm sorry, this sucks. You know, the fighting itself is fine. It's certainly energetic and stimulating. This fight is lame. And, you know, whatever misgivings you might have had about Obadiah and that battle, that was way better than this. Not to mention the great fight we got at the Grand Prix. I just, this is not a satisfying end for Whiplash. It does not bring any of the story strands together very well. Yeah, they make a triangle and I don't know. It's lazy. It's bad. I wouldn't say bad. I wouldn't say good. It kind of falls in the middle. It's average to me at this point. There was bad leading into it. And so if you already have that taste in your mouth, I could see where you wouldn't go with this. Whereas for me, I would say this is on par with the fight with Obadiah, which I didn't necessarily care for either. The difference is Iron Man 1 rode so high so long that it was coasting through that end. Here, you had that 20 minutes you discussed and that it ends with this. Well, if you're already not going with it, this isn't going to pull you back. Yeah, I actually kind of enjoyed this end fight. I didn't enjoy the whole self-destruct thing, but, you know, fighting the drones, flying the dog chases when they're in the greenhouse <laughs> garden setting. What is that? It's like a biodome. I expected Polly Shore to come out. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. It was a conception of what a forest will be like in the future, which is to say, there will be no forest unless you want to go into a giant dome. We will have completely mowed down all trees. Great thinking, Stark. <laughs> I love it. But I liked, you know, even though it's a lot of shootouts, I liked it. It, it was well staged. Even the lightsaber laser beam, that's only a one-time usage, which I roll my eyes at. But it was still cool. It was a nice surprise. I do think the final fight with Whiplash was kind of a letdown. But for the most part, this ending 
action scene I'm finding more entertaining than the one in Iron Man 1. And maybe it's because there was a whole boring 20 minutes right before this. I'm glad something's going on now. Yeah, I'm with you, Jacob. The laser, I like that at least they call it out. Rhodey's like, why don't you start with that next time? If they hadn't called it out, I'd have a big problem with the super laser. But because they called it out, I go with it. This may be simply that I have been turned off because of what has happened and you're not getting me back. But at best, this is serviceable. At worst, it is refusing to do what they set up to do at the beginning. But it's over pretty quickly and very anonymously. Whiplash is dead. Justin Hammer is arrested because that's what Paltrow does. She calls the cops. That's her whole thing. (laughs) She calls the police to arrest Justin Hammer. Yeah, on what charges? Like, what evidence do the cops Oh, yes, he obviously aided and embedded Ivan. Yeah, well, he harbored a criminal. He did uh, blow him out of jail. But what evidence did they have of that besides Gwyneth's word? At the very least, he came out and said, these are my drones, and then the drones killed people. Yeah. Do you get arrested when your invention malfunctions like that? Probably, yes. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) That that seems more of like a military tribunal to me if you're a military defense contractor. The police just don't seem like the ones that should be handling that to me. Shield, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. They're too busy babysitting Tony to actually save the world, though. I mean, think about it. Shield did come in to try to stop Obadiah last time. Shield would have made more sense than, what is this, the LAPD? NYPD. We're in New York. I don't understand if Tony is West Coast, why he is representing in New York. They have totally screwed up this East Coast, West Coast thing. Well, it's because the Avengers are supposed to live in New York, so I think they have to retcon some reason for Tony to be there. That was a bad choice. But the one thing that Pepper also does here, the only thing that I noticed, I didn't notice calling the cops, she finally consummates a meaningful kiss. You know, they teased this last movie on the balcony. Well, here, as Rhodey puts it, they kiss like two seals fighting over a grape. Are they a couple now? I mean, Iron Man 3, are they going to be married? Is this... Iron Man 3, hell, for some reason, Paltrow signed on. She's in Avengers. Really? I know. I can't believe it either. I'm stunned. Me too. And and happy. I would like to see this storyline continue. I'm intrigued with how they would play this. This is actually a one time where in an action movie, the romantic subplot doesn't feel tacked on and placating. I actually care about these people. I want to know where they go. Yeah, there's one moment during this big action scene where Gwyneth finds out that Tony was dying. And I thought there was a nice little piece of dialogue. You know, you're dying? Well, not anymore. Like, yeah, you could tell she actually cares about him. And I did like some of those moments towards the end here. They've always had a good rapport. Those two. I mean, it takes Robert Downey Jr. to make me not dislike Gwyneth. And he brings her out of her shell. The two have a great chemistry together. And that scene is a good example of it. When the two are bickering and bantering, I enjoy watching them but really that should be the end of the movie with the kiss but no there's two more scenes that have nothing to do with this movie the avengers initiative or what i like to say hedging our bets (laughs) if we can't get robert downey jr to sign on the line and come into our big movie then what we just want the suit what is all this nonsense about we just want the suit I said in my review back in 2010 that I think this is all very meta, where yes, they hadn't signed Downey Jr. to either Avengers or Iron Man 3 at this point. They had to get him to sign. They weren't sure about schedules and budget. And I think this whole thing was, well, just in case it doesn't work out, let's write it in here. I remember you being a little bit more panicky on message boards, Arnie, saying he's not in it. He's not in this. What they're doing to, to write him out of it. Panic is the right 
emotion because I would be abhorred for them to recast or Rhodey or I don't want to see Gwyneth. I don't want to see anybody else in this suit. Downey is right. Stark is right. He is Iron Man. You cannot establish this character in two movies and then create the big team up in which he's not there. That would be awful. I think that's why they said consultant. I read it as he might cameo. He might yes. come on set for a week. <laughs> Marlon Brando it. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah. You're right. He is such a big star and the Avengers is such about a team effort. There's no Downey in Avengers. I mean, you just can't imagine his oversized personality being subservient to Nick Fury or Captain America, the people that are supposedly leading the team. I'll tell you this now, because Avengers is going to be a huge podcast, so I might as well get this in now. When they signed him, they said it's going to basically be Iron Man 3 and he's going to have some sidekicks. And when he sat down with Joss, he goes, this movie won't work if it's not all about me. This is for the Avengers you're talking about? Yeah, for Avengers. He's probably not wrong. (laughs) Joss agreed, and they went through script after script after script where it was Iron Man 3 with some co-stars, and finally they realized it wasn't working that way. They rewrote the script in a different way, took it to Downey, and Downey's like, no, you're right, this is better, and it is more ensemble now. But coming out of Iron Man 2, with the box office of two Iron Men behind him, everyone was thinking, it's like Iron Man 3, Avengers Assemble. Mm. Well, uh, you know what? That's a very interesting process, and I want to salute the people for coming to the decision they did. I mean, maybe I shouldn't. I haven't seen Avengers yet. But that is a bolder choice. It would be very easy to say, let's play to our most popular character. And even though this is supposedly a team, let's just make it all about him. It is more brave, more challenging, and I would guess more true to the comic that it's going to be about all of the characters and not just Iron Man. I agree. I still do think, though, this movie was so meta. I felt like Coulson was Marvel and... Tony was Robert Downey because there's that scene where Coulson goes, we need you. And Stark says, more than you know. And Coulson goes, not that much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was the conversation they had with Ed Norton. (laughs) (laughs) A question for you, and I think I asked this back in the Hasselhoff days, but I repressed all that. Is S.H.I.E.L.D. (laughs) a wing of the U.S. government? Because at the end of this, Stern is pitting on medals on these guys. Is he okay with Downey keeping the because he's essentially joined the U.S. military and is part of S.H.I.E.L.D.? That's the only way that this makes sense to me, that he's being awarded by Stern. Well, he was going to be awarded no matter what. They were giving him a medal. They needed someone to present it. And Stark, again, speaking as Downey, is like, you can't afford my fees. But then he goes, I'll waive my consulting fee for a favor. And that favor is getting to, you know, basically stick a finger up Gary Shandling's behind. Okay. So nothing really ever got resolved with the U.S. government. They still want the suit. They have the suit. They kind of have it now, so... Okay, so they're fine with War Machine. Okay, all right. That's the resolution. I never really understood what the resolution was, but that's it. Okay. Then we have the credits and the after-credits scene... Colson mid-movie is like, I got something I've got to go deal with in New Mexico that's more important than babysitting you, Tony. And so they just leave the same way they just show up. They just leave. And we find out he went to New Mexico because... Someone dropped their tools? (laughs) 
There's a big <laughs> hammer in the desert. And Stuart, you know what this is, right? I mean, you're going to be my lowest common denominator. Do you know what we're looking at? <laughs> I'm very up on movies, so I knew that Thor and Captain America were in the work. I saw the Captain America shield earlier. I saw the hammer here. I knew what they were doing at this point. I saw it in theaters and I stayed for the credits. I was not puzzled by the mysterious hammer that fell into the crater. I knew that Thor was next on the list. I will say my wife had no idea. And she goes to Comic-Con every year with me. She's a big fan of Adventures of Babysitting, which stars Thor. And she's like, huh? (laughs) Vincent D'Onofrio is Thor. Yes. We're not covering him in this podcast, but yeah, I guess you could say that. But yeah, she's like, why is there a hammer? What does that mean? I'm like, it's come on, it's Thor. Yes, uh, because I knew about the movie properties. I mean, they got it together in this one. I mean, in many ways they didn't. Let me back up a little bit before I get head forward. But, you know, you said after Hulk, they really didn't know what the next step was for Avengers. But when they created this movie, they knew all the steps to get to Avengers. I felt like there was no mystery. They knew they were going to hit Cap and Thor, gave us visual cues about that, and then they were going to do Avengers. The calendar was set at that point. No Iron Man 3 before Avengers. I was actually really pissed off by this scene because I felt like the end scene should lead to Avengers. At the end of... Iron Man 1, there's Nick Fury. At the end of Hulk, which should have been the post credit scene, there's Robert Downey Jr. talking about this team they're putting together. This was a teaser trailer for Thor. It had nothing to do with Avengers. It was merely, hey, our next movie is dot, dot, dot. Well, come on, Arnie. Let's just be honest. The whole reason why they did Iron Man 2 instead of Thor next is because they needed the popularity of this to get people to go with what is potentially a much tougher sell here. I mean, it logically, there was no reason to double back and go to Iron Man again. Particularly when you consider in the last clip, he actually was part of the team. He was a part of this boy band that he, in this movie, claims he didn't want to be a part of. He was going to William Hurt and saying, hey, we can got a team. We can solve your Hulk problem. Well, that's all been retconned here. Actually, it's not a retcon. It is not a retcon. This movie is a prequel or a sidequel to Hulk because during this last scene where Fury is saying to Stark, we don't want you on the team. We only want you as a consultant on one of those mini monitors is the scene of the news coverage of Hulk at that Virginian University. Oh, wait, Stark was in New York at his expo. Not that far from Virginia. (laughs) He he couldn't help a brother out and, and take care of this. He was a little busy with whiplash. Yeah, he defeated you know. him in an evening. He could have gone, you know, flown down after that. I guess he wanted to make out with Gwyneth, though. Oh, uh, well, you know, I guess that's much like comic books, right? That they allude to things that are happening in other franchises and other series. And okay, I'll, I'll accept that. I didn't certainly watch this movie this way. We're watching it sequentially. I assume Iron Man 2 is taking place long after Hulk. But all right, if there's this weird concurrent and prequel universe, then all right. But my point still remains. I don't think that they would have double backed on Iron Man if they had, in fact, had extreme confidence that Thor was an easy sell. This is an advertisement for Thor. It is not another link in the chain to Avengers. And Thor will be our next discussion. And I will say right now, out of all the Avengers movies, Thor was the one that I was least excited for in theaters because it's 
Thor. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll talk about that next week. But for this week, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Iron Man 2? Jacob. Funny thing, I gave some recommends or not recommends out about this film previously. It wasn't on a podcast. It was just uh, people I knew. And I didn't recommend it. And I have to say, I kind of changed my mind watching it the second time. Maybe that first time, there's just so many expectations coming off of Iron Man. I called that one a game changer. And this, it's a game changer. They just changed it back to the old game where they're, they're going to hobble through with subpar storytelling and, you know, have a, a few good CGI graphics and some good action scenes. But there is enough here, you know, w- with my expectations a little more in control this time, not all hyped up by that briefcase armor. I came in, I had a good time, for the most part, with the stuff I had a good time with with Iron Man 1. I enjoyed Downey in this again, his great ad-libs and his humor, what he brings to the Tony Stark character. I like Justin Hammer, played by Sam Rockwell. I like Gary Shandling in this. You know, there was moments throughout this, peppered throughout this film, to use a pun, that I did enjoy, and yeah, that whiplash scene at the beginning at, with the Grand Prix and the ending action scene. I enjoyed those. This is not the same Iron Man that we reviewed a couple of weeks ago. You know, there's a line in here. Aren't you Iron Man? Sometimes. That's how I felt about this film. It's like Iron Man 1, sometimes, but it's sometimes enough that I could enjoy it, that I wasn't pulling my hair out of boredom. Yeah, there's some things that infuriate me, making magical elements without an explanation, but there's enough storytelling here to get by, so I give it a very much toned-down recommend from Iron One, but still a recommend. All right, Stuart. Well, they're calling out my bluff. I think I said during Iron Man that they made a movie half as good. I'd recommend it. They have. (laughs) Iron Man 2 is half the movie that Iron Man was. It's got a good first part and a pretty terrible second part. And what carries it through is the goodwill I have and the affection I have for the people. And it's still fun to watch them play, even in a substandard story. You know, I feel like the second half of this movie is on par with a lot of Marvel properties that I've not recommended. But the reason why I'm going to weekly recommend it is because of Downey, Paltrow, Favreau's light touch, the fun that I have in it, the smart, the wit, the quips, the fleeting moments that, yeah, like you say, Jacob, will remind you of what you loved last time. You'll still like them here. And that goodwill gets you through. I mean, if this were the first Iron Man movie, I don't know. I might not recommend it. But because there is an Iron Man 1, and this is 2, and I know the rule about sequels not being as good as the first one, yeah, I'll go ahead and do it. I like Iron Man. I like Iron Man 2. Recommend. Once again, we are united, our little boy band with recommends. Albeit, I think we're all a little weak at our recommends. Uh, It's not the same, yes. This is probably going to be the weakest recommend I give to the Marvel Avengers series here. It is getting a recommend for a lot of the reasons you stated, Stuart. But that said, I, in addition to everything you stated, this movie could be shit if it had the Monaco scene in it. That alone makes it worth a recommend. Anytime Iron Man 2 is on, I'm channel flipping, I see Iron Man 2, I turn to it, and if we're near the Monaco scene, I watch that scene. I can't get enough of that scene. I absolutely love the Mark V, I love Whiplash in that scene. I can't get enough of that scene. It You say the best scene of all the movies we've reviewed. I don't know that I'll go that far. I mean, there is a Dark Overlord we're competing against. 
but certainly really close to the best, if not the best. So the first hour does carry the second one. I like a lot of what they do. I like a lot of what they're building towards, but man, a whole bunch of mistakes made. But still enough for me to say, yeah, I recommend you see this as we build up to Avengers. And let me be clear here. You're saying that Incredible Hulk is better than this movie. Yes. Okay. Yes, I am. I enjoy Hulk a hell of a lot more than I enjoy the second hour of this. I also liked Hulk. The Ang Lee one more than this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just talking about within this Avengers, no. keeping track of the five movies leading up to the one nobody's here is. Yeah, that's all I'm talking about. Yeah. Of yeah. these five, this is my weakest gonna be my weakest recommend. Okay, well you've seen know. the next two and I have not. This I don't know, it's new territory. I'm an Iron Man fan, so I saw them in theaters before these recordings. I don't know what I'm going to get and I don't know. We're two for two on Iron Man, but Hulk not go so good. <laughs> Hulk make me angry. Uh, and Thor, well, you're making me think about Hulk. That ain't so good either. I took a Norse mythology class in high school. It's going to be like that, right? Yeah, we'll see. Well, we'll find out next week. And in addition to Thor, next week, we have a show coming out in between. But it's a quid pro quo. It's our spring donation drive where we are asking you guys to help keep now playing, plugged in and reviewing movies with a donation of $10 or more. Stuart, tell them what they'll get as a thank you. Yeah, it's this little obscure movie, Alien. You might have heard of it. I don't know. It's all right. You know, it's only my favorite damn movie ever. And yes, we'll be doing Alien, the sequel Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection. And after a three-week break, we are going to be covering the prequel, or whatever it is, Ridley Scott's return to the Alien universe, Prometheus. $10, five films, very worth your money. I'm going to just go ahead and put it now. I'm so jazzed to be doing this series finally it has been a pet project and to have it culminate in prometheus my heart is bursting out of my chest along with everything else <laughs> so that is again a donation of ten dollars or more if you come to our homepage, click the donate button at the bottom or click the link at the top and it takes you to the page with all the details but it's a donation of ten dollars or more and we say thank you by giving you guys these five podcasts for those who want to support us even more because when we did our first donation drive people did donate more knowing that we put a lot of hard work a lot of hours and a lot of our own money into this show if you donate 25 dollars or more jacob tell them what they get as a thank you we're doing more aliens, this time through Spielberg, a loose alien trilogy of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., and War of the Worlds. Now, these, as with all of our donation podcasts, are going to be limited. Prometheus comes out June 8th, so you're only going to have until the end of June for this donation, $10 or more, Alien Films, $25 or more, Alien and Spielberg Reviews. These are some pretty good shows. I'm very proud of them. Stuart Brock and I on Alien, Stuart Jacob and I on Spielberg. You can donate at nowplayingpodcast.com and thank you in advance for your donation. I think it's quite honestly the biggest and best donation series we've ever come up with. I think that this is the one, if you've never donated before, this is the one to do it. So until then, Avengers Assemble! You come from a family of 
thieves and butchers. And now, like all guilty men, you try to rewrite your own history. And you forget all the lives the Stark family has destroyed. My father, there is in your life. The reason I'm alive is because you had a shot you took in the nest. Did I? If you can make God bleed, then people will cease to believe in him. And they will be blood in the water, and the sharks will come. The truth, all I have to do is sit here and watch, as the world will consume. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Now Playing Avengers Retrospective Series. We're adjourned. We're adjourned for the day. Okay. You've been a delight. Part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. This is a whole new level of weird. I don't feel inclined to step away from it. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another movie based on the Marvel Comics through the release of The Avengers this May. Your work has impressed a lot of people who are much smarter than I am. And be sure to visit Venganza Media Gazette at VenganzaMedia.com forward slash gazette to read Arnie's reviews of every episode of The Incredible Hulk TV series. A new review is posted every day. God bless you, brother. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, go to our archives where you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics movie series such as X-Men, The Fantastic Four, Blade, and Punisher. Plus, reviews of the Avengers' early works, like the Bill Bixby Incredible Hulk movies and the Captain America TV movies. Good luck keeping up. We also have non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many more. Guys, I'm bringing the party to you. You will also find individual movie reviews, such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. We made this thing, all of us. Please. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Here we remain as a beacon of hope, shining out across the stars. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. You've seen what he becomes, right? I have. And it's beautiful. Godlike. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Therefore, what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything, is welcome back. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You have to explain that statement, sir. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. Is it too much of a problem to ask? Because I'm, I'm... Okay, okay. I really need your help here. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Get yourself something nice for me. I already did. And? Oh, it's very nice. Yeah. Very tasteful. Now Playing's Avengers Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. I've moved on to the next one, because that's what we do, right? And that's the job. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Wow. You spoke to me with what you did, and I know that you knew that I'd be listening. 
Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or Marvel Studios, Paramount Pictures, Universal Pictures, or the Disney Company. The Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, The Incredible Hulk, and all that the Marvel Universe contains are the property and trademark of the Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. You really think that just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Just stick to the official statement and soon this will all be behind you. Now Playing is a Inganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Any last words? Is that dirty enough for you? Give me a fat beat to beat my bicep. <laughs> Garlet Johansson. 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 Give me a fat beat to beat my bicep. <laughs> this is Arnie, and I podcast at the pleasure of myself because. Hey. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> You guys should really email ahead of time. I thought there's no way. There's no way. I thought the same thing. I'm like, I don't know what line he's going for, but he will not go for that one. Jesus. <laughs> this movie's got quotes. It's not like there was one line. I always like a good masturbation. All right. I got quote, a different though. one. I got a different one. Okay. Give me a fat beat to beat my bicep. <laughs> I'm bleeding badly. I'll be right back. <laughs> What do you do while you podcast, Arnie? Stigmata. He's, it's God. <laughs> all right. Um. So, all right. So I won't say that. So you, it's your, it's your, your choice. You make it. You make the segue. I think he's bandaging himself up. Oh, he's bleeding still. Yeah, still. Suck it up. Come on. How bad can you be bleeding during a, a podcasting? <laughs> Both y'all. <laughs> I knew that would get him back. I'm like, he is listening, and he is cursing us. My wife brought me wireless headphones for Christmas. Ah, good. All right. I'm like, why am I not getting a reaction? Because I was far away. I was bandaging myself. <laughs> My foot was bleeding. It was like all over the carpet. Oh, ooh. All right. We'll all right. Take care of that. Give me a fat beat to beat my bicep. <laughs> you know, if I they made Bucket List, the Iron Man edition with Rhodey and Tony, I would watch that. <laughs> I didn't see the bucket list with Nicholas or Nicholas Cage. With, I didn't see the, <laughs> what is with your Cage obsession? <laughs> I don't know. Tonight. I need to get him out of my life. Um, what is his name? Nicholson. See, I was close. It was just Nick thing. Um, I did not see the bucket list with Jack Nicholson. I wasn't necessarily referring to that movie. Dare we bring up uh, anything sentimental? I just I thought. It Give me a fat beat to beat my bicep. <laughs> They had to shoehorn her in, so but we don't want to give her a you bunch of. You almost shoehorn. <laughs> I did. <laughs> you know Scarlet all too well. <laughs> give me a fat beat to beat my bicep. <laughs> Towards this Avengers movie, I'm prepared for the ending to have a Sam Rockwell cameo, in which they explain, "Oh, Nick here's Fury what's cameo." Oh yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> give me a fat beat to beat my bicep. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. Were you? T I'm, are you talking about Whiplash? I'm confused. I, I thought you were I, talking about Obadiah. Here, here, I got it. Obadiah. 
<laughs> that was two weeks ago. <laughs> I know. Give me a fat beat to beat my biceps. <laughs> my heart is bursting out of my chest, along with everything else. <laughs> your heart is bursting out of everything else, or everything else is bursting out of your chest? <laughs> uh, you do the visual. Give me a fat beat to beat my biceps. <laughs> <laughs>